This is the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage, and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning, they can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. Amen. Thank you, John. I actually, I don't like preaching after John does the scripture reading, because his voice sounds like a radio professional, and I sound like a middle school girl who smokes too much, so... Hi, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors, if you're new. I'd like a do-over on that. Um, we're in a teaching series uh, called All Things New. And the heart behind this series is quite simply this. The last few years, there has been so much hardship, so much difficulty in our society, in our church, in our families, in our individual lives, that we need to pause and, and look at what it is that Jesus offers, which is the gospel power of renewal. In the book of Revelation, there's a portrait of Jesus sitting on his throne, and he says, look, I am making all things new. That is the work of the Lord Jesus right now. From his, from his throne in heaven, the work of renewal. If you have given your life to Jesus and come to know him as your Lord and Savior, the Apostle Paul writes that you are a what? A new creation in Christ Jesus. How many of you are a new creation in Christ Jesus? How many of you some days don't feel like a new creation in Christ Jesus? And so that's what this series is about, is looking at the renewing power of the gospel in a wide variety of aspects of our life. We started out talking about, you know, as, as individuals, our minds, our hearts, our bodies being renewed by the Lord. Now we're going through a series of relationships. We did marriage, parenting. Next week, we'll look at friendship. Today, we're going to focus on the relational aspect of being single or going into a dating relationship. And uh, I hereby solemnly swear that I did not plan a sermon on dating the day before Valentine's Day, on purpose. I planned this series out in November, and the Lord was chuckling back then as he saw me put the schedule together without thinking about what February 13th meant. Uh, so my sincere apologies on this. And uh, I do want to give a quick heads up for those of you uh, parents with children here in the room today. I will have some discussion of sex and sexuality. Um, as always, uh, my intention is never to be uh, you know, shocking or gratuitous, but I do want to talk about how those um, aspects of our humanity interact with a topic like singleness and dating. And so just giving a heads up to you parents that you may uh, need to schedule a conversation later this afternoon with your kids. 
do it during the halftime performance because if I know Snoop Dogg, you don't want that sermon on sexuality and uh, dating. Uh, you want this one instead. So will you pray with me? Let's, let's bring all of who we are into the presence of the Lord right now. <clears throat> Lord, we bring our, our anxious minds, our, our restless hearts, our tired bodies. We bring all of who we are into your presence right now, Lord. <clears throat> Lord, would you grant us the gift to be aware of the reality of your nearness, your presence with us? Lord, that very often... Um, a feeling of loneliness that we are alone will drive us to sin or will to drive us to sadness or to despair. But God, you are with us. Even as we saw in our confession and our assurance today, the Lord of heaven's armies is with us. God, would you guard my speech? I only want to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that you give each and every single one of us receptive hearts that we might grow more like and closer to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is a question, why, why devote an entire Sunday teaching to the subject of singleness and dating? Especially in a church that has, like ours, that has such a high percentage of married couples, married with children, or married, maybe empty nesters. <clears throat> and there's a few reasons, okay? This subject is relevant to all of us no matter our current station or season in life, okay? So first of all, all of our young people, all of our kids who are downstairs underneath us right now, and all the students who come on Tuesday night, they're all currently unmarried. We don't have any child brides here, okay? So they're all unmarried, and they will go through, most likely, a, a natural progression of aging and growing and need to learn how to navigate being a single person, going through dating, going into marriage. For some of you, you're in a season of life where you desire to be married, but for whatever reason, that season has lasted longer than you thought. The Lord has not brought the right person into your life, and so you're in a season of delay. Others of you, you are not just delayed, but you sense from the Lord a specific calling to walk out singleness, to walk out your faith in that role. But here's something that maybe we don't like to think about very often. Uh, some of the marriages in this room may not make it to the very end. They may see divorce, and you may find yourself on the other side of singleness once again. And while I hope and pray that that is not the case, and while I hope and pray that we beat the odds, and I hope and pray that the Lord continues to do a work of renewal and strength in all of our marriages, that you take, those of you who are married, you take your marriage vows very seriously, and you invest in your marriage, the, the sad reality is that some people find themselves single once again when they did not expect it. And we want those who have gone through the sad experience of divorce to not feel like damaged goods or second-class citizens, but to know that they are loved in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, here's another one that maybe we don't like to think about, but for those of you who are married, it is highly unlikely, just statistically speaking, that both of you will take your last breath at the exact same time. It is very likely that you or your spouse one of you will find yourself single again in the future. And so for our elderly population or for those who have experienced the pain of widowhood, we need to acknowledge it. So singleness affects not just those who are young, but those who are old. It's really interesting. Over the last seven, eight years since both of my grand grandfathers have passed away, both of my grandmothers have been in dating relationships, again, in their 80s. 
and we have a family text thread, my parents, my siblings, and I, and we've just delighted in how funny that that is to us. My grandmother on my dad's side, <clears throat> she ended up, she had a boyfriend for a while, who was one of my dad's old college professors. And it really weirded him out, and we all thought that was really fun. So who knows? Who knows what life could lead to? Who knows what may happen? But I want us all to think biblically, to think wisely about the subject of singleness and dating so that we can raise our children, we can support those who are widows or divorced, we can, we can love each other well in this subject. I would also like to just make a personal acknowledgement right at the beginning here that I am perhaps the worst person on planet Earth to teach on the subject of singleness and dating. Some of you know my story, but my wife and I met when we were 14 years old. I was playing drums in a church service, uh, and she walked in, new to the church, and thought, I wonder if there's any cute boys here. And then she saw me playing drums, and she said, good enough. And <laughs> hunted me down like a, like, a, like a lioness on the Serengeti chasing down a helpless gazelle. She made her presence known. And now, that's why I lean in the direction of Calvinism, because I didn't choose her, she chose me. And uh, also her favorite flower is the tulip. If you get that joke, that's a deep cut for you Reformed people. But we met at 14. We started dating uh, right away. Dating, like, hey, you know, walked up to her on the playground. Like, hey, you want to go out with me? I can push you around on my skateboard or something. Like, right? Like, I don't know what you do at 14. And then we got married about, ooh, an hour and a half after high school graduation. So... Uh, there's a comedian, Nate Bargatze. He has a line that I really resonated with. He also talks about getting married young. And he says, I went straight from living with my mom to living with my wife, which means for my whole life, there has always been a woman standing there saying, I don't think that's a very good idea. And so (laughs) I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, my own personal story does not lend itself a lot of credibility to teaching on the subject of singleness and dating, but I hope and pray by God's grace that I am one who is faithful to teach you what is in the Word of God, which is true and reliable and trustworthy, and to be able to share some practical wisdom with you. And the place where I want to start us today is with the big idea, and actually the big idea was already hinted at in verse 35, when the Apostle Paul says, I'm saying this for your own benefit. I'm saying all these things not to put some restraints on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So the big idea that I want us to be grounded in today is whether you are single, dating, engaged, married, divorced, widowed, no matter what season or no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, pursue wholehearted devotion to Christ. He is the one to whom our primary devotion to our primary allegiance must belong. Amen, church family? Now, with that as our baseline, this is our goal. That's our, the, the bullseye of our target. I want to spend, I kind of want to do like half and half. I want to do like the first part here talking about singleness, the state of being unmarried. And then I want to spend some time talking about just dating and and how to go from not being married to being married, okay? So let's start by talking about singleness. I want to make three points about singleness. And the first point is simply this. Singleness is not a deficiency. Singleness is not a deficiency. In verse 38, the, the last verse that our brother John just read in our scripture reading, the apostle Paul says, he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do Better. Did you guys catch that in the scripture reading? Better. I heard Melissa laugh at that. Paul's funny in this passage, right? You know, in our, in our culture, 
the romantic relationship really takes the place of uh, ultimate fulfillment. Apart from God, especially, apart from a relationship with God, it's, it's the romantic relationship that will end my feelings of loneliness, will give my life meaning, will give me completion. And so we elevate, again, just kind of broadly speaking in our secular culture, we elevate the romantic relationship to the level of idolatry. There's a problem, however, that, that that can also seep its way into the church. Now, friends, do we believe that marriage is ordained by God? Do we believe that marriage is a good gift from God? Does the book of Hebrews say that marriage should be held in high esteem by everyone in the church? The answer is yes. But marriage is also not ultimate. Jesus taught that there will come a day when marriage as we know it will be no more. We will all, there will be one marriage in eternity, the bride and the Christ. So marriage is itself not ultimate. And we also know that marriage itself is not ultimate, but it's not even a deficiency. The Apostle Paul is saying it is better. It is better. Paul, best we can tell from the scriptures as well as church history, never married, lived his life as a single man to go and do the work of the ministry, to travel the entire world, to be thrown into prison, beaten, shipwrecked, all, the, all those things that you know from the book of Acts, so that he could spread the message of the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not a second-class citizen. And unfortunately, the way that some churches speak about single people— speak about the state of being unmarried. I, I came across, across a quote this last week in my study and research for this passage. I won't tell you the quote, I won't tell you the pastor, but I would almost guarantee like 80% of you would recognize this person's name. And the way that he was speaking about single people was shameful, denigrating. Oh, just a bunch of selfish, you know, won't refuse to grow up, blah, 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 blah. Okay, listen, let me, let me ask, well, let me just say this. Is it possible to be single? Is it possible to be single because you are selfish? Yes. Is it possible to be a married selfish person? Yeah. Maybe we should deal with the problem of selfishness and not pile on those who are not married. Marriage is a good gift from the Lord. Marriage is a beautiful thing that God created. But single people are not deficient, lest I need to remind you that Jesus, our Savior himself, in his earthly life and ministry, lived for, you know, whatever, approximately 33 years as an unmarried single man. So to our unmarried brothers and sisters, whether that's younger and seeking marriage, but even divorced or widowed, you're not deficient, okay? You are loved. You are valued. And every married person sitting in your row is going to give you $20 before the service is done. So I'm just kidding. You can if you want. But I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that loud and clear. And married people, we need to support that as well. Number two, singleness. So if that last one was kind of pushing on the married people, this one might be pushing on the single people. You might push back on me. Singleness is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to skip back to verse 7 briefly, where it says, whoops, I skipped back like a whole book of the Bible, says, I wish, the Apostle Paul says, I wish all people were as I am. I wish you could all be single like me. But then he says, but each has their own gift from God. One person has this gift and another has that. Have you thought about singleness as a gift? I know there are quite a few unmarried people I've spoken to in my life who think of singleness more like a curse than a gift. I was reading Sam Albury 
in his book on friendship and singleness, uh, he writes, he says, I once received a gift from a local friend that was so bad, I had to leave it at a thrift shop in another town to avoid the risk of the giver coming across it and realizing what I had done. That's a bad gift. And I know there are some of you who in your singleness or your unmarried feel like, yeah, God, thanks, thanks for this gift. Feelings of being alone, Feelings of people wondering, is there something wrong with this person? Why aren't they married yet? Etc. And I challenge you to think of your singleness as the Apostle Paul does, as a gift from God. In a few chapters, in 1 Corinthians 12, but also over in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes about spiritual gifts. Gifts like prophecy, speaking in tongues, uh, practical gifts like serving or administration, gifts like, like words of knowledge, I don't think I have ever, until this last week, thought to go loop in singleness into the Pauline 1 Corinthians list of spiritual gifts. Do you see that being one of the gifts that the Lord gives to his people for the sake of building up of the body? Now, maybe it's a temporal gift. I happen to believe, my conviction about spiritual gifts is that when you are saved, you don't automatically receive every single spiritual gift you will ever have or use during your Christian life and and, and ministry. I believe that the Lord gives us gifts. Some gifts may just be always there. Other gifts may come and go. They may be for a, a temporary season. I've known people who have you know, operated in a certain gift, a gift of hospitality for a season, and then life shifted. And it's like the Lord kind of pulled that gift back and gave them a different gift to use. Singleness might be something like that. It might be a seasonal gift, something that the Lord has given to you for this time. For what? For the building up of the body of Christ. Friends, you know that every spiritual gift is given from the Lord for the sake of building up the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are not given to make you feel good, to make you built up or puffed up in pride in an age of celebrity and platform and and Instagram followers and TikTok followers. All of the, the, the ways that spiritual gifts can be used can be corrupted for the building up of self, for the building up of ego, for the building up of a fan base. Friends, we who are called into the body of Christ are given the gifts for the building up of these people sitting around you right now and for those who have yet to be added into the body of Christ. We want to see the body of Christ built up by building up literally new people joining in to the body of Christ. So some of you, your marriage is a gift from the Lord. Use it to build up everyone in the church. For others of you, your singleness is a gift from the Lord. Use it for the building up of the body of Christ. Number three, singleness may be a calling from God. It may go beyond just a season into something that is a calling. And I want to address a couple of things here, and I want you to uh, listen carefully to what I am saying and what I am not saying. Brothers and sisters, back in verse 24, he says, each person is to remain with God in the situation into which he was called. So in the subject of singleness, there may be a calling element. And the way that I see it, for most people, it's just a phase or a season of life. But for some, there's clarity from the Lord for a specific calling. And I think that it's hinted at in 1 Corinthians 7, one of the reasons why someone might be called to a lifetime of singleness is for a specific ministry endeavor. 
Think about the Apostle Paul and what he was called to do and shipwrecks and, and you know, uh, uh, imprisonments and beatings and all of these things that the Apostle Paul did. That would have been quite difficult for him to do if he had a wife and children to care for. The Apostle Paul, even in this, in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he's not, you know, knocking it, but he's like, hey, you got, you got a spouse? Your attention is going to be divided. Just think about your life. You have to make sure that you are caring for and, and pleasing your spouse. So your attention is divided. He says that some people, you may be called to a lifetime of singleness for the sake of a specific ministry endeavor. It's interesting. This is, you know, this is a little bit speculative, but Peter, we know, had a mother-in-law, uh, it's really hard to have a mother-in-law without having a wife, so we can assume and infer that he had a wife, even though we don't read about her. And it's interesting that Peter eventually settled down in, in Antioch and didn't go do all the traveling stuff that Paul did, maybe because his kids were getting of an age, or who, who knows? So again, a little bit speculative. But there can be a specific ministry call to devote oneself to prayer, like certain you know, monastics have done in the past, or to devote oneself to mission work in a, in a, a dangerous, hostile part of the world where it could really literally cost you your life. But I do think there is another thing, another reason that singleness may be a calling from God, and it's hinted at here in 1 Corinthians 7, and it has to do with the subject of desires. Several different places here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul brings up desires and, and learning how to control our desires, but that, you know, he talks about for, for those who are, are, are dating or engaged and, and you can't control your desires anymore, well, just get married because that is the appropriate place for sexual intimacy between a married husband and wife. So to pursue marriage. So certainly marriage is much more than just, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really burning with passion here. I better just get married so we can not be sinful. Marriage is much, much more than that. But the subject of desires does come up. We are the kind of church that lovingly but unapologetically holds to a historic orthodox understanding of what the Bible teaches about gender, sexuality, and marriage. That God's design is for marriage to be between one man and one woman in a covenantal whole life union, and that it is only within that type of a covenantal commitment, that type of relationship, that we are to uh, give place to our sexual expressions. And there are desires that we as human beings have that would lead us, if we acted upon them, to violate God's commandments and his, under, his, his um, design for marriage and sexuality. But we also recognize that not everyone experiences the same types of desires, I also know, because of firsthand people telling me that in our church gatherings, when we gather, we have brothers and sisters who love Jesus and who experience the desire of same-sex attraction. They experience a type of attraction to people of the same gender as them. And so we as a church, as I said, we, we hold to a historic, orthodox teaching of what marriage and sexuality is, but we also, as a church, have a value of saying we want to bring all of who we are into the light to be able to share with one another what's really going on in our lives, and then we help call one another to obedience to Jesus Christ. And so we can say, 
without any contradiction or without any guile, that marriage is the appropriate place for sexual activity, biblical covenantal marriage. And yet, if you experience same-sex attraction, same-sex desires, you are welcome and you are loved here. And like anyone that experiences desires that could lead us to actions that would be outside of God's plan, we're going to call all of us to faithful, sacrificial obedience in the Messiah. I was thinking about this because um, there's, a, there's a verse in Matthew 18 that comes up. Matthew, oh sorry, it's, it's actually Matthew 19. My slides are wrong. Matthew 19, where Jesus has been teaching on marriage and the very high standard for marriage and, and the divorce and remarriage stuff. And so Jesus gets alone with his disciples and they start saying like, man, this is, if this is what relationship of a man and his wife is like, it might be better to just like skip the whole thing and not get married. And Jesus is like, yeah, you get it. That's what I'm saying. He says, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he, he makes this interesting remark. He says, for there are eunuchs. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, please email Pastor Doug Freiberg and he'll explain it to you because it's just awkward. I don't want to talk about it. But he says there are eunuchs who were born that way. Something happened at birth where the, the reproductive organs are a birth defect or something. And so sexuality and that full sexual expression is not going to happen for them. He says there are, are ways, they were, there were people who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made that way by men. And that was uh, particularly kings or rulers would do that so that they could put someone in charge of their harem. So they would rob another human being of their potential sexuality and reproductivity so that they could watch over their expression of unfettered, ungodly sexuality. I mean, just the wickedness of that. But then Jesus also says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. There are people who have foregone the full expression of sexual intimacy because the kingdom of heaven calls them to it. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. I referenced a man named Sam Albury, who's a pastor and an author, and he's written on his own experience of growing up and experiencing same-sex attraction and wrestling through his own sexuality and wrestling through those feelings and those desires and then wrestling through what the Bible teaches about gender and marriage and sexuality and how that all works together. And so he's written extensively on the idea of the way that he's doing that is to acknowledge his feelings, acknowledge his desires, and to say, I'm committed to following Jesus in chastity and obedience. And so he pastors and ministers as a single unmarried man and does so with great faithfulness from everything I've watched from a distance over the last eight to ten years. As I was reading and studying and researching, I also came across an article from a woman named Becca Mason who had not been familiar with her work before, but she similarly, she describes growing up in a, a conservative, orthodox type of church and not knowing what to do, having just terror with these feelings that she was experiencing and not knowing how to bring them into the light of Jesus. I won't put it all up on the screen, but she says this. She says, at the height of the purity culture movement, I was a high school student terrified by my attractions and wondering when God was going to give me a miraculous healing followed by a husband and kids same-sex attraction was condemned as something that separated me from God, no matter how much I loved Jesus. Instead of finding support, 
for a profitable lifetime as a single Christian, I consistently faced people who were well-intentioned but determined to just find me a husband. Yet I stayed, despite loneliness, misunderstanding, and conversational homophobia. I stuck it out because of my deep conviction that my life as a celibate gay Christian was just as much a walking picture of the gospel as any of the marriages I encountered at church. And even today, I experience those same tensions in the church. What has changed, though, are my expectations for how God meets my human need for support and relational intimacy. Instead of longing for marriage, I embrace the deeply connected friends in my life and intentionally cultivate those relationships for a lifetime of love and support. And we'll talk more about friendship next week. She closes by saying this, In a world motivated by the twin mantras of follow your heart and live your truth, who better to demonstrate a countercultural lifestyle than those of us who could easily find love and acceptance in both progressive churches and secular culture at large, yet choose to remain faithful to God's design? By way of example, a friend of mine recently relayed a comment he received from a teen at his church. The student thanked him for talking to the youth group about his sexuality and his commitment to celibacy. The teen said, you're the first person I've met in church who's really giving something up for Jesus. Friends, for those of you who experience those types of attractions and desires, we want you to know that you are not unlovable or a problem to be solved. For every single one of us, the call is sacrificial obedience to the way of Jesus. And every single one of us needs to learn better how to die to ourself and to our desires. For some of you, that might include a specific calling to be unmarried and chaste. I'm not done, but I want to pause for a moment. Let me just pray. Lord, to speak so openly about things that can cause people such pain. There's so much existential pain. There's so much cultural animosity of people throwing stones and calling names. Spirit of God, would you let this place be um, unwavering in our commitment to biblical truth and unwavering in our commitment to love people and for all of us to seek to follow you in obedience in whatever season or station of life we are in. Help us, we pray. Amen. All right. Part B. Dating. So, the Lord has not called you to a lifetime of singleness. The Lord has not called you to that specific ministry calling. Has not necessarily made that clear that that's going to be your station or your season for the rest of life. You want to pursue someone. What do you do? Well, let's talk about you first. Before we start talking about them, before you swipe diagonally or whatever you're supposed to do, uh, <laughs> uh, how do you get yourself ready? How do you get yourself ready to be the kind of person that can go into a dating relationship and succeed? Number one, the, the, again, like I said, all the way back at the beginning, the bullseye, the crosshairs are on godliness. Pursue godliness. You Become a godly man. You become a godly woman. Put sin to death. 
Begin serving others. All of the elements of being a disciple. Pursue godliness. Look, maybe you find someone, you date them, you get married. You're a better spouse. You can love them more like Jesus. Maybe you never find that spouse. Maybe that they never come into your life. You have a closer walk and a closer relationship with Jesus who is the ultimate source of your satisfaction anyways. Pursue godliness. You with me? Number two, pursue self-awareness. When I share this, I'm thinking of verses like Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Or I think of uh, in the Psalm, Psalm 52, when King David asked himself, why, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Like, what's going on within me? Friends, uh, you know, my, my season of sabbatical that I had last fall, one of the like, daily, daily practices that my wife and my, my, my spiritual mentor, Rusty, held me to was practicing silence and solitude because it is very easy for, well, I'm a noisy person. My children are noisy peoples. We live in a constantly noisy culture and dings and text messages and all that stuff. It's really easy to not know what's going on in your own inner world. Why did I respond that way? Why did I feel that way? Why did I act that way? So you need to pursue self-awareness so that when you come into a romantic relationship, you'll have the ability to know, because, you know, in that dating relationship, uh, there might be some, like, I don't know, disagreements or something, and you're going to want to know what's going on in your heart that leads to those or why you respond the way that you are. So, number one, pursue godliness. Number two, pursue self-awareness. And then number three, pursue friendships. And I just keep, you know, dropping this friendship stuff throughout this teaching today. We're going to address it more fully next week, but it is remarkable to me, some of the research I've stumbled across, the sociological link between healthy marriages and healthy friendships— and I don't know how much of it's correlation versus causation. All I know is that the healthiest marriages, there are also healthy friendships. And for men in particular, you need to prioritize your friendships. I'm generalizing here, but in my experience, it is more common for women to pursue friendships outside of the ma- marriage. It is more common for men to ignore their friendships outside of the marriage. And married men, you do so to your detriment. For those of you who are unmarried and you desire to be married, work on your friendships. Starting there. Now, okay, you've done some personal work. You're pursuing godliness. You, you, you talk with a mentor, a leader, a pastor, somebody who's like, yeah, there's no major character defects. You're growing in self-awareness. You've got a good community of friendships and people around you. You're ready to date. How do you start? How do you find the right person? Here's the problem. The most biblical, the most common biblical way that a relationship would get started was arranged marriage. So, parents... Meet up after, uh, after church and start arranging some things. Uh, you know, matchmakers have their place. And I don't even go so far. You can tease apps or whatever. But matchmaking has its place, uh, especially if it's a person. Myung, Myung's got a pretty good batting average over there of, of matchmakers. He's, he's, he's done pretty well. We have got at least one or two uh, marriages in the room who are, you know, like, yeah, thanks, Myung. It was good. So hang out with Myung. Uh, I, I read an article. I read an article. That's one of my points, just hang out with me. I read an article from the New York Times where they were talking about they're starting to do these like dating podcasts. You know, we've had like the dating game or dating shows or The Bachelor or things like that, but now they're starting to do podcasts. And one of the podcasts was um, that you don't see each other, you don't exchange any information, you just record a voice memo and you send it to the other person back and forth for 30 days. And the creator of the show was like, well, yeah, it really helps people like connect. She said this line, she said, because... 
it's easier to not judge someone if you don't have as many data points about them. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. It's real easy to not judge someone if you don't know anything about them. I don't know. It seemed ill-advised to me. Probably the best way, this is, this is a probably, the best way for romance to grow is out of those friendships that I talked about a moment ago. That you're cultivating biblical, godly, uh, Christ-centered friendships with men and women, and out of that you begin to notice a, a stronger connection with one other person. That's probably the best, although there's other ways to meet someone. Here are a few things I can say, though, um, about how do you get started. When you start this dating relationship, when you start a romantic relationship, number one, begin with the goal in mind. Begin with the goal in mind. What is the purpose of a dating or a courtship or engagement sort of relationship? What is the purpose? To get ready for marriage. In our culture, dating is, I just want to have somebody to hang out with. That falls short of the biblical standard for dating. Friends with benefits, casual sexual encounters, all of those things are outside of God's will for what marriage is and for what dating is. So if you're going to begin a dating relationship, do so with the end in mind. Where is this headed? Number two, as you're trying to find the right person, don't settle, but be realistic. And here's what I mean by this. Again, in the spirit of Romans 12.3, of thinking of yourself with sober judgment, with a realistic picture of who you are, some of you sell yourselves far too short. You're not looking at yourself with sober judgment. You're hearing the voice of the inner critic. You're hearing the voice of, of a critical parent. You're damaged goods. You're a loser. You're a failure. You don't deserve anything. That is the voice of the devil. You are loved. You are precious in his sight. Don't settle for someone who is going to treat you with that same kind of disdain that the devil has for you. Do not settle. The other side of that instruction is do not set the bar so high that you cannot find another human being to partner with. Well, she needs to have like a six-figure income and a background in like modeling and the voice of like she's been on American Idol a couple times, you know. Like for crying out loud, like the bar can be set so high that you can't find another person to spend your time with. Like you might not be that impressive yourself too. Just like think with sober judgment. They are just a human being. You are just a human being. Can you enjoy time with them? Can you help one another pursue godliness and Christ-likeness? Don't settle, but be realistic. And then number three, again, involve friends and family. Don't let your dating relationship be just the two of you. Include that broader community. Yes, there is an aspect of when this leads to marriage of the leaving father and mother. You know, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that, but, but for the most part, as a general principle, involve people in those dating relationships. Lastly, I don't know what the right term for this, but like, how do you, how do you like level up? You're dating, we're hanging out, but like, how do we like, okay, we're, we're trying to level up here. We're, we're going somewhere, we're headed towards marriage. How do we go from point A to point B to point C to all the way to marriage? Three instructions on that. Number one, Build on the foundation of spirituality and friendship because those will last. Conversation, talking, prayer. Build on that spirituality and friendship. And if, as you are progressing, you find that there is a significant enough misalignment spiritually, 
then you need to get good at breaking up quick and don't let it drag on for years and years. For those of you, by the way, just for those of you who are younger and you're getting into romantic dating relationships, it is highly, highly unlikely that what happened with Aaron Lynn and I is going to happen to you. You will probably not marry the first person that you ever meet. Honest to God, like, what were we doing? What were we thinking? Who, I hope my parents listen to this podcast. What were you thinking? I don't recommend what we did. The Lord has been gracious, and by his grace, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary this last year, so he's been good to us. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Get good at breaking up, okay? Build on that aspect of spirituality and friendship, and then number two, regularly reassess the relationship. Regularly reassess the relationship. Are we growing together? How long should we date? How long should we be engaged? This is, this is, if you can just hear what I'm saying, is just practical advice. This is not like a thus saith the Lord. I get really skeptical over dating or engagements, dating relationships or engagements that just last forever and ever and ever and ever and never head towards marriage. My assumption is you're probably already just sleeping together then and you feel no need to make that commitment of marriage, which is sinful according to God's design for marriage. And if that's not the case, is there fear of commitment? Is there a casualness to the relationship. Regularly reassess the relationship. If you're dating or you're engaged, are we heading towards marriage? And lastly, you have to embrace the tension. The, the, more, the further along that continuum you go of like dating into engagement, the closer you get to marriage, the, 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 the closer you are to the fire, the warmer it's going to get. And Paul acknowledges this with sexual desire. Hey, you're, you're just burning with passion. Just get married already. But you know what's interesting is that tension can actually lead us, if you, if you embrace it, as you embrace that tension, it will actually lead you to a closer relationship and a closer understanding of where we're at with Jesus. So let me close with a couple thoughts here, okay? Two quick thoughts to close. First one is this. No matter your current situation, your future, if you are in Christ, is incredibly bright. What do we have to look forward to in eternity? The marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding with the Messiah. There will be one marriage. There will be Jesus and his bride. And no matter if your season of singleness right now has dragged on longer than you wish, if you've been hurt, if you've been rejected, if you've gone through divorce, if you've lost a spouse to death and are currently a widow or a widower, no matter what, if you are in a marriage right now that is less satisfying than you thought it was going to be, for all of us in Christ, our future is incredibly bright. We have a hope. We have a hope for the future. We have a hope of joy and the brokennesses of this world to be done away with. And our future in Christ is going to be incredible. But also, right now today, no matter your season or your calling or the situation that you're in, Jesus understands and he cares. Jesus gets it. Jesus relates. Like I said earlier, Jesus lived his earthly life and ministry as a single man, Jesus, man, you can get into Old Testament theology where God talks about Israel divor- being divorced from Israel. God gets it. God gets it. But for those of you who are in that dating engagement, that, that tension, we can think of the already not yet of Christ has come, he has gone away to prepare a place, and he's coming again like a form of engagement. 
We're living in the tension. We're living in the already, not yet. John 14, Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be so upset. Believe in God. Believe in me. You can trust in me. I'm good to my word. He said, in my father's house, there's a lot of rooms. This is a very Jewish sort of thing where you would build on to the family complex, the family compound. You would build on rooms, and after you got married, once you, were, once you were able to prepare the place, then you would go and you would move in with your bride and start a family. He said, if it weren't so, I would, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also Sam Andreas, who's a pastor and author, he writes this, commenting on this verse. He says, given what a bridegroom had to do to prepare a life for his intended, this is basically a marriage proposal. Jesus said his words on the evening before he was going to pay the mohar, or the bridal price, with his blood. In Jewish custom of the time, several years might separate the betrothal from the marriage as the groom prepared the rooms. We are now living in that time of waiting before Christ's second coming and his return to get us for the marriage of heavenly union with him. I'll close with this quote from him. He says, It may be uncomfortable to think about Jesus speaking this way to a group of guys in a closed room, but Jesus is ever one to be free with his metaphors. Soon after, he takes to calling them orphans. Just as God is a father to orphans and a husband to widows, so also he is a fiancé to single folks. If you allow him to be that, he is enough for you. If he is your ultimate date, you can date well. And if he is not, you are liable to lack the inner strength to treat your dates as they need to be or to be treated by them as you need to be. No matter your station or season, we pursue the Savior together. Lord, we pray now as we prepare our hearts to come to the table and to eat and to drink in anticipation of that future wedding supper. Lord, I also think right now as we eat and as we drink, the symbol of being a community of younger and older and married and unmarried and uh, Lord, for all of us to gather around the same table with the same Heavenly Father, with the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you unify our hearts? Would you help us to grow together in wholehearted devotion to you. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we see our Savior Jesus face to face. It's in his name we pray. Amen.